Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Jody Wilson-Raybould's release of her phone call with Privy Council Clerk Michael Wernick is what I discussed with Lisa Raitt, the deputy leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. You'll hear that. Also, you'll hear what Brian Peckford, the former Premier of Newfoundland and Labrador, had to say. He negotiated many situations, including with Pierre Trudeau. David Aiken joined me, the Chief Parliamentary Correspondent for Global News. And Scott Moe, the Premier of Saskatchewan. Not only on what's going on in Ottawa, but also the carbon tax and the canola situation with China shutting off imports from Canada. That's some of what you're going to hear on the podcast. Lisa Ray joins me, Deputy Leader of the Conservative Party of Canada and Justice Committee member. Ms. Raitt, thank you so much uh, for the uh, the time. When Mr. Trudeau insists it's the first he's heard of that call, what do you say? Well, I think you've got to read between the lines of what he's saying. He's saying he wasn't briefed by Michael Wernick. He's not saying he wasn't briefed. Michael Wernick could very well and probably did brief Jerry Butts and Katie Telford, who in turn then informed the Prime Minister this, uh, this PMO has been very crafty with the way they put messages out. They're not telling the whole story throughout the entire process. So for me, what that message is, um, not that he didn't know, just that it wasn't Michael Wernick who told him. And that's why he gets into the second part where he says, I wasn't aware of the full contents of the tape. Well, what the heck does that mean? You told us at one point that there were no allegations, that they were false. So following Mr. Trudeau's consistent narrative changes isn't going to help the matter. What The only thing that is true as an arrow is what Jody Wilson-Raybould said in her first time before the committee and what she followed up with yesterday, including the tape. And we can believe her testimony. How surprised were you at what you heard? I was surprised because it's an extraordinary case where the clerk of the Privy Council calls a cabinet minister to convey the wishes of a prime minister um, why there is that separation, why did the Prime Minister not just pick up the phone? I think we know the answer to that is because they all knew what they were doing was wrong and they wanted to give the Prime Minister plausible deniability. And that's why Michael Wernick has resigned and Jerry Butts has resigned. And that's what is happening. This is all a cover-up meant to try to protect him. It was his desire and his wish that SNC-Lavalin get this plea bargain deal to be diverted out of the criminal proceedings and get a remediation agreement. And when that didn't happen through the normal process, he decided he was going to try to ram it down the throat of the Director of Public Prosecutions through the Attorney General. And that didn't work for him, so he fired her. That is so critically important that we that we not lose sight of that of that whole fundamental issue, and that is that the independent federal prosecutors were to be interfered with by the Attorney General at the uh, behest of the Prime Minister. That is deeply troubling. Even though, yep. even though he says that's 
that's not the way it went. And, uh, and, and the news release yesterday talks again about different perspectives having been heard. It's not perspectives. It's I know it is one set of facts, you know. <laughs> oh, but they use the word perspective. I know, I know, I understand that. They've got all kinds of words that they like to use to muddy the waters. Um, but the, the fact of it remains, this isn't done yet, Roy. There has to be a further look at what happened. We have the prime minister of the country, I believe, now we know very clearly that he was trying to politically interfere with a file to the point where he may be obstructing justice. And that is worthy of a look by the RCMP. Okay, so I'm going to speak tomorrow with Peter McKay, the former Attorney General for Canada, mm-hmm. former colleague, caucus colleague of yours. And uh, Mr. McKay was one of the five uh, former Attorneys General who wrote a letter, an open letter, to the uh, Commissioner of the RCMP, Commissioner Lucky, calling for an investigation into uh, possible um, conduct, inappropriate uh, conduct. It's time for that, isn't it? I mean, I just, I'm, the more I look at this story, and, and I'm trying to push away from the table, but I can't. It's, yeah. This is really, it's necessary for a, a police investigation. It is. And it's sinking into Canadians. I was out in my riding today, door knocking, and people are, they're not angry. They're just, they're, they're absolutely gobsmacked that this has happened. They can't believe this has happened because it's very clear and apparent to him, to them, that the Prime Minister's fingers are all over this. But, you know, there is one person who should be coming forward now and um, acting on behalf of Canada, and that is the current Attorney General. And I'll tell you why. If you recall, one of the things that we uncovered in Justice Committee was that when Jody Wilson-Raybould went back to talk to her cabinet at one point in time, and that was just to explain what happened, the Attorney General, David Lametti, deliberately left that cabinet meeting. And when we asked him why he left, he said he left because he didn't want to be in a conflict situation. So now that he knows the information that he does, I think there's an onus on him to make sure that the integrity of the system is upheld and that at least he start an investigation or ask somebody to take an investigation as well. Mercedes Stevenson, uh, Global News, tweets out um, Jody Jody Wilson-Raybould saying, however, I did make another decision at that time that I would immediately resign if the new AG decided to issue a directive in the SNC-Levelam matter, as this would confirm my suspicions as to the reason for the shuffle of me in particular. That would speak volumes, wouldn't it? Absolutely, and it just shows you that Jody Wilson-Raybould knew all along what was going on and that they, they were threats that Michael Warnick made to her about her job because it's in the back of her mind thinking, okay, I'm getting, I got moved because of the position I took vis-a-vis the Prime Minister on SNC-Lavalin. But I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt, she says, and if I see any movement towards getting a DPA, then I have to resign because I cannot condone it because what he said is... Her presence in cabinet speaks for itself, and in her testimony we received yesterday, she says, well, I resigned, and that should speak for itself as well. What happens to Jody Wilson-Raybould now? Oh, they're kicking her out of caucus on Wednesday. Um, they've been building the case to do so, and they're talking. They're using terms like she's not part of the team. So, look, do you want to be on a team of people who think it's okay to interfere with the judicial system in Canada? I wouldn't want to be part of that team either. So she probably recognizes and realizes what's happening and. And I found the tone of the rest of the documents she put in 
more reflective and in terms of, well, I think this is the last time I'm going to be writing something on this topic, so I might as well get it all out. And she's resigned herself to the fact that she's going to pay a price. I'll just close with this. Had uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould not been blocked by the usual 5-4 to four vote, at the Justice Committee, she would have been back to testify before you and the rest of the committee, and that phone call might never have been publicly released. That is true. Um, she had to release the phone call in order to back up her written statement. That's the conclusion she came to. It's, I have to say, I mean, it's very extraordinary that she taped it, but I think it shows you the mindset and the amount of badgering that she was undergoing at the time where she even thought, I think I need to protect myself because this is going to be a bad phone call. And she taped it, and she determined, secondly, she had to release it in order to support her testimony because Michael Warnick and Jerry Butts were just flat out denying that any of this happened, and she had the proof. So for her own good name and reputation, she put it out there. We probably would never have known about the telephone call. I think she only did it. You'd have to ask her, but she probably only did it to make sure that people understood that the evidence backs up her her claims. Ms. Ray, thank you for the time. I appreciate it, Roy. Take care. Good talking to you, Lisa Ray. Brian Peckford joins me, former Premier of Newfoundland and Labrador, who was, as I've been saying, very engaged in political negotiations, including with Pierre Trudeau over the Charter of Rights, from the reasonable to anything but. And Mr. Peckford blogs at Peckford42 at blogspot.com. Great blog pieces. Premier, thank you for the time, your assessment of what's going on and of yesterday. Well, first of all, I have to say that I'm, I'm really happy uh, how you played uh, the excerpts from the, uh, the audio that uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould uh, made when, uh, in her interview or her conversation uh, with the clerk of the uh, Privy Council in emphasizing the word independence. What separates real democracies from pretend democracies is the rule of law and the independence of those instruments which are to apply the law. And there are three of them, the courts, the police, and the prosecutorial system. And in this case, we're talking of the prosecutor, who is supposed to be independent, look at all the facts and then make a decision as to whether or not they should go the court route or go the new uh, deferred uh, prosecution route and the director of prosecutions decided that in this case the criteria did not the the SNC level and did not meet the criteria to go the deferred prosecution route and that was confirmed by the minister and so this is what separates us from those who pretend that they have a democracy like for example Turkey would be a good example which is very current today and many other countries and those that really 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 have a a rule of law, and a real democracy. And what the Prime Minister and his office and the others were trying to do was undermine that principle of independence. And I really, really get frustrated when I hear Mr. Wernick on that audio talk about, we just want you to use what's in your toolkit. The Minister had already examined all the things in her toolkit and had made a decision confirming what the director of prosecutions had said. It's over, Mr. Prime Minister. And the minister 
went to Cabinet and told all of Cabinet, look, we have this new law that Mr. Harper brought in, blah, 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 but there is no guarantee in this that you will get always get the decisions that you want because we agree, and you agreed with me, that this will be independent and that the Director of Prosecutions will make whatever decisions made and we'll all stand by it, and you agreed to that. So this whole thing uh, smacks of, again, and now we have sort of additional confirmation to what the minister had said verbally in her presentation to the parliamentary committee. We have the sort of documentation which lends the credibility needed to the minister's statements earlier that uh, there is no question that this was political interference in the operation of the system of justice in our country and should be condemned. And as one of your email people just said, who communicated to you, really the prime minister of this country, the present prime minister, really needs to resign and we need to get back to some form of justice and order in our, in our, in our dealings politically. What's your sense of the correctness or lack of correctness to record that phone call with the, with the Privy Council clerk? I think she was in a very different, uh, a very difficult situation. She had already, of course, because she had been hounded for months before this December uh, conversation, and she recognized, under normal circumstances, you'd never do that. So I understand that. But like in, in lots of things, uh, there, are <laughs> there are circumstances which are not normal and become exceptional. And she realized from the September 1st initiation of interference by the Minister of Finance aides, then by the aides to the Prime Minister, and then the conversation with the Clerk of Executive Council, it was building and it was building and it was building, September, October, November, December. And when she took that phone call, just before she took that phone call, she realized that this uh, was going to elevate the whole interference matter. And uh, her sense, I think, was correct, that she was going to have for her own credibility uh, record this. And so it's within that context, I think, that one could uh, determine that there was legitimacy in her doing what under normal circumstances she shouldn't do. You know, I don't think she recorded the phone call because she had nefarious intent for the Liberal Party of Canada. I think it was something she was exposed to, and that yes. was pressure to interfere with the, with the independence of the federal prosecutors. Exactly. And, she's, and, she, and she's just fundamentally and ethically opposed that, and the pressure exactly. continued, as we heard in that phone call. If, if Jody Wilson-Raybould is removed from caucus, and that seems to be the conventional thinking now, come Wednesday she's gone, and they'll say it's the caucus decision, not Justin Trudeau's decision, what then for Jody Wilson-Raybould? Well, she can sit uh, and, and declare herself to be still a liberal and sit as an independent liberal uh, in the parliament. She could then uh, or sit as just an independent MP without any uh, party affiliation. So she could do one of those two things. Or, of course, she has the option if she wants to resign from parliament altogether. But from her, her comments of the last several weeks, it would seem that she still wants to be a member of parliament and to try to change the way uh, the governance system of this uh, country works, whereby just about everything is concentrated in the Prime Minister's office and the Privy Council office and the Parliament is just an adjunct or an add-on to what's going on in, the, in the, how decisions are made. So she, she's insistent, and she says this in her, in her statement that she released yesterday. She's uh, very determined to try to reestablish 
uh, more power to the members of parliament and to the parliament itself, uh, rather than have it continue to move as it has moved under a number of prime ministers, all the way back to uh, Justin Trudeau's father, where the prime minister's office really started to take off and balloon in the number of people there and the role of the Privy Council office. So I, I would suspect that uh, the minister, the former minister, um, uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould, will sit as an um, independent liberal in the parliament until the next election, and then she has to decide she won't be uh, able to run for the Liberal Party of Canada because they will ensure that uh, she, she doesn't get nominated in her writing. She would have to then to run as an independent liberal or as an independent and, and take her chances uh, with the voters of her writing. Mm-hmm. Do you remember any similar situation, anything that could be equated to what's going on now in your many years in in the r- political reality in this country? You negotiated with uh, Justin Trudeau's father, Pierre, as Premier of Newfoundland. Was there anything that, that even becomes comes close to what we're experiencing now? No. I can't remember, and I've tried really hard over the last number of weeks as I've written my blogs and so on to try to to come to grips with what is going on here where you have the, a most blatant interference in the independence. As I said in my few blogs, a blog a few weeks ago, uh, when you became, become premier, you are, you are uh, briefed by the clerk of the executive council or the secretary of cabinet and so on about the conventions and, and principles that operate in the governance of your government, whether it's provincial or federal. It makes no difference. The same principles apply. And one of the principles that were made known to me very quickly on, which I adhered to because I, I was frightened to death by what, what the person was telling me, was, you know, when the prosecutorial system in the Department of Justice, Attorney General Office, or wherever it was in that particular province, uh, you know, moves forward uh, with a, a decision to prosecute somebody in some uh, court case or whatever, that's it. Uh, and uh, n- never does uh, the, the Premier's office. And so this was made clear to me to ensure that my aides, my executive assistants, including and me, uh, understood what the principles were of governance. So, no, I have not seen anything uh, even c- coming close to where we are today. In a number of provinces over the years, there have been indications that the prosecutorial service was inept and that there was some political interference in some of them, but not to the extent that we find here, where you have it not only the chief of staff of the prime minister's office, who was a political animal, but also the clerk of the Privy Council and the Secretary of the Cabinet, who's supposed to be completely independent and just provide policy advice, be so embroiled in the politics of interfering with the rule of law. I've never seen it before. Um, Dan McTague, former Liberal Member of Parliament, 18 years, told us on air last weekend, and and probably more people know this, it was news to me, but uh, Gerald Butts and Katie Telford, the principal secretary and the chief of staff of the yep. PMO, respectively, principal secretary to the prime minister previously, um, attended caucus meetings and would actually take notes oh my what God. people were saying and then oh address, oh address the caucus members, the, the MPs oh. or, the, or the senators, I afterward. Never, oh, my God. Never heard of that before. The caucus consists only of the members who were elected by that party. Never heard of that before. I didn't hear about it until Dan McTague uh, mentioned it. Oh, my. Premier, we have about two and a half minutes. Is there something 
about this case that you want to mention that I haven't asked you about, that nobody's really addressed? What's most important to you about what's going on right now? I think the takeaway from this, besides the fact that it's interfering with the independence of our system of government and making it less democratic, the other takeaway is this, is the power and influence of the Prime Minister's office and the clerk of, and the Privy Council office in the administration of policy and laws in this country. The Parliament has been demeaned, the ministers have been demeaned and lessened, and if, uh, if Canadians want to move beyond just the actual uh, conflict of interest and unethical behavior of the Prime Minister and so on, the other takeaway is what I've just mentioned is that we have fast become an executive-run uh, uh, democracy, and that is not good for the health of our system of government in this nation. The other point, of course, I would mention is, is that we see how ineffective and how bad it is when, when this happens, because the clerk of the executive council said in the interview with, uh, uh, with uh, Judy, Jody uh, Wilson-Raybould that he was unaware of a very important communication in writing from the Director of Prosecutions to the Prime Minister's office sent in September. Mm -hmm. And in December, four, three or four months later, he says to the Minister, I never saw that communication. And this was crucial to their whole hounding of the Minister. So the, the way the Prime Minister's office works and the Privy Council office works should have us all concerned about how this country is run. Maybe Peckford always appreciate the time. Thank you very much. Thank you, too. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And joining me on the program now with his assessment of yesterday's release of the recorded conversation between Jody Wilson-Raybould and Michael Wernick and the dozens of pages of written material from JWR is David Aiken, Chief Parliamentary Correspondent for Global News. And I, uh, I confession first, I'm a huge fan of yours, David. Yeah, <laughs> Thank you, Roy. I, I love what you write, and I retweet almost everything that I see you write. Beautiful. So would you please provide us, I know you've been on the road, you've been doing some corporate things, but what's your assessment of yesterday's released phone call, as well as the dozens of pages of written material submitted by the parliamentary, or to the uh, Parliamentary Justice Committee by the former Attorney General? Where does this, where does this rank in the whole story? It, well, you just said it off the top. It makes it bad for the Prime Minister. It hangs all of this on the Prime Minister. There's no hiding behind a principal secretary like Jerry Butts or the clerk of the Privy Council like Michael Warnock. Because in this taped phone call, and we've got transcripts if you want to uh, read this transcript at our website at globalnews.ca, um, Warnock is talking to Jody Wilson-Raybould and he's saying, listen, I'm calling because the PM wants me to. Here's a quote, I wanted to pass on where the PM is at. Quote, the PM wants to be able to say he's tried everything he can within the toolbox to get you to do this. Uh, quote, I think he, i.e. the PM, is going to find a way to get this done one way or the other. The message is pretty clear to Wilson-Raybould. This is the voice of the PM. 
And what did Prime Minister Trudeau say on February the 7th, when our friends at the Globe and Mail, Bob Fife, is talking to him today about this story, uh, reported this? Trudeau stood in front of the TV cameras and said, the Globe and Mail story, the allegations of the Globe and Mail story are false. No one has directed, neither I nor anyone in my staff have directed the Attorney General to do something. And read the transcript. It's pretty clear the Attorney General is being directed to do something. So Trudeau essentially has been proven to, I'll I'll use a polite term, Roy, a dissembler uh, in these matters. There's still questions to be asked. And we're seeing the results in the polls. We we saw two polls last week, one from Angus Reid, one from our friends at Ipsos, both of them showing nearly identical things. The Conservatives under Andrew Scheer now have a 10-point lead, or thereabouts, on the Liberals, and their drop, the Liberal drop, all started when the SNC-Lavalin story broke. Now, the PM claims to not have been aware of the JWR Wernick call. Didn't mm-hmm. not saying he didn't hear it. He's saying he wasn't aware of it until all became clear to all of us across the country yesterday. And so Trudeau makes his demand known to Wernick. Wernick speaks with Jody Wilson-Raybould. And then Mr. Trudeau doesn't find out about the phone call until Jody Wilson-Raybould released the audio yesterday? A stretch. I think so. And, I, I, you know, if you watch politicians long enough, and you probably have this experience, Roy, you, you read very closely what the statements are. And what we got was a, a emailed statement from the prime minister's office about this. So they had a chance to take a look very carefully at what was going on. And I'll give you the quote again. We were unaware of the full contents of this recording. And that's my emphasis, full contents. So does that mean they knew some parts? You know, it leaves it wide open. It's, it's, a, it's a statement that later they can revise again. And this is the thing that I just am flabbergasted. And so are many political, <clears throat> veteran political operatives, you know, from uh, past prime minister's offices, uh, past premier's office. They can't believe how bungled the uh, Trudeau PMO is on this one in terms of issues management and communications, because we start out with it didn't happen, denied it. And then it was, oh, well, yes, we pressured her, but that's perfectly legal. And then it's, you know, it's just moved all the way down the line, and they can't get their story straight. And uh, and certainly people in English Canada, uh, when the polls are asked, who do you believe in this? She said, he said, it's she. People believe Jody Wilson-Raybould more than they believe Trudeau. And now there's a tape that sort of says, well, now there's no getting around it. It's interesting that on, in French Canada, and one of the places I was hanging around this week was with our colleagues at Global Montreal, um, you know, it plays very different, this story, in French Canada, where the uh, this whole problem with SNC-Lavalin, the reason they're being prosecuted, uh, is because uh, English Canadians want to punish a Quebec firm. I don't think that's the case. You can demonstrate that's not the case. But nonetheless, that's a perception in uh, Quebec, and that is going to be a challenge, I think, for federal parties, all federal parties, as they uh, campaign, because, you know, Quebecers are feeling, we have another division here, Quebecers are feeling that one of their champion companies uh, is being um, uh, persecuted uh, unfairly. And you take that, and then you measure it against Western frustration. Right. And you end up almost with a political balkanization in Canada. Right. And and if that that's a really good point. I'm watching that Alberta election, which is underway right now. The second week has just finished up. And uh, as many provincial politicians often do, we saw a bit of this with Doug Ford in Ontario, you know, they campaign against the federal government. Well, you need a strong, you know, government at Queen's Park or in this case, in the legislature in Edmonton to stand up to that nasty, mean Justin Trudeau. 
But this is just one of the many issues in which Trudeau has ended up playing a starring role right now in the Alberta election campaign. And there it's Jason Kenney, the former conservative federal cabinet minister, who's now leading the provincial United Conservative Party. He's ahead in the polls. And uh, and he's using, you know, whether it's the fact that China's shutting down our canola sales or this SNC-Lavalin matter, or you name it, he's trying to use that to uh, saying he'd He'll, he'll make Ottawa change uh, change its ways. I don't think that's true, but you can see the politics. That Absolutely. Play there. Now, had yeah. Jody Wilson-Raybould not been blocked by the usual 5-4 to four vote at the Justice Committee, and had she been allowed to return to testify, I'm actually wondering whether we ever would have heard that phone call. That's a really good question. And, and you know, I d- we may not have, of course, because um, she... Remember the sequence of events here. She testified... Uh, sorry... I'm just trying to think here. We heard from Michael Warnick, the clerk, and then we heard from Wilson Raybould, who had some things to say about what uh, Warnick said. And then Warnick was invited back to testify in response to Wilson Raybould. And after that, we also heard from Gerald Butts, the prime minister's good friend and former principal secretary. And both in, in Warnick's second testimony and Butts's testimony, they spoke about things that Wilson Raybould was by the oath she took for cabinet confidentiality, prohibited from talking about. And she said so. But she did say, I'd like to come back and give you more evidence. And, of course, as you said, the Liberals said, nah, we've heard everything we need to hear. And um, nonetheless, the door that the Liberals on that committee had opened was, when she was in front of it, they, and she was reading some text messages, they said, hey, can we get a copy of that? And she said, well, I'll take that under advisement. So she did, and that was her opening to submit these written records in this audio tape. So... Once again, uh, you know, the, the, the liberal brain trust in the PMO or wherever it is, you know, a bad fumble and has allowed Wilson-Raybould to put this audio tape, not just on the pu- public record, but it's a record of parliament, you know, and that, that has implications because that means when you file something to a justice committee, and this is important, I don't think everybody knows this, it's like a court. It's, it's the same um, uh, a bit of evidence you give in a court. You've got to tell the truth. If you don't tell the truth, you're found out to have lied. You're found in contempt, you go to jail. That's how serious it is when you put evidence, either written or oral evidence, in front of a House of Commons committee. It's like you're talking to a judge. And so we can say that Wilson Raybould, who's a lawyer, she certainly knows this, the evidence that she put in front of that committee, she certainly knows the perils if she's um, uh, not telling the truth here. David, you mentioned Gerald Butts' testimony, and uh, I keep going back to, and I think Mr. Butts left. Um, a little pile of issues here to be resolved. That's going to come back. He told the Justice Committee the government was unaware, Jody Wilson-Raybould, felt political interference was taking place until after she was removed from the Attorney General's position. That's just not a sustainable position any longer. No, especially when you listen to this audio tape. Exactly. She says at one point, I'm uncomfortable about this, Michael Warner, she's talking to. Um, And don't forget, this audio tape is... uh, you know, certainly she's she's still the Solicitor General, so this is three weeks or so before she gets uh, shuffled around. Um, she says, I'm uncomfortable about this, and she says, I'm trying to protect the Prime Minister. So she, like, the, any clerk of any Privy Council anywhere should have taken that as, you know, oh my God, I better let the PM know. So, you know, does anybody find it believable that Michael Warnick did not tell the Prime Minister about his phone call with Wilson Raybould? It's very hard for me to, to accept that. 
And that's why I go back to this very careful comment coming now from the PMO. Mm-hmm. We were unaware of the full contents. Mm-hmm. But it came report. in the form, it came in written form, as you pointed out. So there's no, right. there's no chance. No ability to question somebody about right? it. No yeah. questions and no chance of a flub while you're del- delivering the message. Right. Now, um, as you may know, the MPs have been back in their ridings for the last week. Um, so they haven't been here in Ottawa. There has been no question period. There's been no committee activity. And there will be next week. The MPs will all be coming back to town tomorrow night, ready for the week ahead. Um, every Wednesday morning when MPs are in Ottawa, all the caucuses meet behind closed doors. It's a standard practice. You know, get their, uh, get whatever they have to get out, uh, you know, again, in, the, in confidence in caucus. And I can tell you that after, since this Wilson-Raybould tape has surfaced, if Liberal MPs were nervous or unhappy with Wilson-Raybould before this, they're furious now. A lot of them, anyhow. And as I said, this caucus meets on Wednesday. Uh, the, there's a pretty strong feeling that on Thursday, Wilson-Raybould is no longer a member of the Liberal caucus, that she'll be removed somehow. And, and if that happens, there's going to be more political problems, because Trudeau has always said about that issue, should she be in the caucus or out, it's up to the caucus. Because I don't think he, you know, he's the feminist prime minister. Yes, he is. Does he want to have to fire the first indigenous <laughs> female justice minister out of his caucus? I don't think he wants that on his record. So he's trying to get the caucus to do the dirty work. But the mechanisms by way that would actually happen is the leader in their party, the leader has to basically sign off. So he would, he's the one at the end of the day that would have to say, you know, my caucus is voted and they want her gone and so she's gone. Is that the end so for Jane Philpott as well? Week. Is that the end for Jane Philpott well, as well? There is, there is certainly way more anger about Wilson-Raybould and there is some about Jane Philpott. And that's one of the things, to be honest, I'm working this weekend trying to hit the phones to canvas liberal MPs to find out, would it be both of them or would it just be one? And if it's just one, what are the implications? What does Philpott do? Um, you know, she would be disappointed, uh, no doubt. But there are some other liberal MPs who would be disappointed to see either or both of them go. So it's going to be a very uncertain week. It's going to be a week where, you know, we're going to be running around after politicians. They're already out there talking to reporters. They're on Facebook. They're on Instagram. They're on Twitter responding to this. Alexandra Mendez, she's a liberal MP from uh, Montreal, the South Shore of Montreal. Uh, she told the CP reporter uh, after she saw the tape, she said, this is horrendous. And uh, she is not wanted in the caucus and it's time to kick her out. And that's one of the first I've seen on the record saying, that's it. Hit the eject button. David, thank you for the time. Great talking to you. Nope. No problem. going to be a fun week ahead, Roy. It will. Thanks. David Aiken, Chief Parliamentary Correspondent for Global News. We're joined by the Premier of Saskatchewan, Scott Moe. Premier, thank you so much for the time. Thank you, Roy. I appreciate it. Let's start with the canola issue and, and uh, tell us, please, what it means to Saskatchewan, what it means to Western Canada, and what it mean, means to all Canadians that China is so dramatically cutting Canadian canola imports. Well, China's our number one market for uh, canola, not only our number one market, it's it's a premium market, and it's our, our market that is growing uh, for Canadian canola. In fact, I think 45% roughly of uh, Canadian canola lands on onshore in China each and every year. 50% of that canola comes from, from our province of Saskatchewan. So it is uh, in, in the billions of dollars of exports in seed, in uh, canola oil, and in canola meal uh, each and every year. Uh, very important, obviously, to the economy of our province in Saskatchewan, but but hence, uh, I think, uh, very important also to the, the broader economy across the nation. And this uh, this challenge we have with 
market access in China is building on uh, you know already already present challenges of pulse crops into India, uh, Durham wheat into uh, into Italy, and uh, is really straining uh, our agricultural situation as we enter uh, our growing our planting season this spring. So, for people who've never seen a tractor in a field, it is still important to their daily lives. It's incredibly important as we produce, uh, you know, food uh, and uh, for for the entire world, uh, not not just Canadians. Canola alone, we export canola out of Saskatchewan and Canada to over 50 different countries around the world. And you know, as I always say, we should be very proud of our our agricultural industry because of the the environmental impact that it doesn't have actually or the positive environmental impact that it does have here in western canada uh, being a carbon neutral industry and a uh, you know a very very sustainable industry uh, producing a, a very necessary food agri-food product for affordably uh, for people all around the world this is a, a market access challenge that is going to affect all canadians if we're not able to rectify it sooner rather mm-hmm. than later premier let's look at the carbon tax monday in four provinces it's going to be uh, um delivered by the federal government. And the federal environment minister, Catherine McKenna, has accused you of publicly, rather, of misinformation concerning the carbon tax for saying it's a cash grab. What do you say to the minister? It is a cash grab. I mean, I mean, by their own documents, uh, between now and, and 2022, it'll be a cash grab of almost $4 billion from the province of Saskatchewan. Her own documents that were uh, presented to her that she didn't release uh, on a freedom of information in 2016 or 17. I mean, at the same time, our provincial uh, federal minister, uh, Ralph Goodale, here in, in the... Uh, in the province when we released a, a document uh, uh, from the University of Regina that said uh, not only is it a cash grab, it won't reduce emissions. Um, I think that U of R study said it would reduce emissions about 1.6% or, or something to that and to that effect. Um, he called that divorced uh, from, from reality. Well, the federal documents that they had in hand at that point in time said that not only would it cost $4 billion, uh, it would only reduce emissions by 0.6%. So, I mean, it's, it's a cash grab with uh, no, no, no effect, really, on emissions reductions. I saw that uh, on, your, on your Twitter feed, that story. Right. It's, it's 0.6%. Now, you also have 91% of Saskatchewan's small business community behind the government and the court ch- challenge of the carbon tax. So uh, what will the carbon tax do to the people of Saskatchewan and the cost of daily consumer goods? Well, on, on Monday, uh, on April the 1st, and this isn't an April Fool's joke, the federal government's going to impose this at the fuel pumps and on, on families' heating bills. So I think the initial cost is going to be uh, seen by families across this province that are taking their children to school or hockey or, or wherever uh, you know they are going uh, come Monday. And I would encourage all, all people in Saskatchewan and across the nation to fill their vehicles up uh, tomorrow, as that is the last day you don't have to pay this uh, this this foolish ineffective tax. Um, but secondly, uh, they're going to notice it on their on their power bills, their heating bills, uh, and and that uh, essentially is going to be a problem not only for families but also for for small small business, which they don't have a system set up on how they're going to recoup the uh, the rebates that they speak of. So a small business is going to be hit very hard, and I think that's why you see them being so supportive of of uh, of, of not having this this ineffective tax charged on them or their families, because small businessmen are, are people too, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and, and moving in a different direction, the direction that we've always discussed of, of sharing our innovation with the world. Minister McKenna, Prime Minister Trudeau, insist that everyone will get their carbon tax money returned. That just simply isn't the case. How can um, you do that? 
It, it isn't the case. It just simply is not the case. And furthermore, not only will they have their, their carbon tax dollars uh, returned, um, it, it doesn't reduce emissions, which, which is the whole intent of, of the conversation that we're having. You know, we continue in this nation to do a very good job of, at having the wrong conversation. Uh, you know, we've been talking on this show many times, Roy, over the course of the last number of months uh, with respect to talking about taxing families and industries and, and jobs, uh, sending, pushing jobs essentially out of our jurisdiction because of this, this policy. Um, while we have our energy industry in Western Canada and, and our manufacturing industry really uh, being struggle, struggling uh, due to policies just like this. We see auto manufacturing plants uh, having a, a difficult time, and, and we see the consequences of that because we are not concentrating on, on being competitive uh, here in this nation. We're doing it again now, and I was listening uh, to uh, to uh, former Premier uh, Peckford uh, on the show just before me. Uh, we're, we're, we're talking about... Um, you know, a, 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 a political implosion, really, uh, in, in our nation's capital, when we should be talking about our market access uh, of canola and, and other agricultural products uh, or steel or aluminum uh, challenges that we have with the U.S., as opposed to talking about, you know, what's going on in Ottawa, where we essentially have, you know, some people that have been elected to govern our nation and putting, really, their, their own self-interest ahead of, of what the people have put them there to do. Well, we were running out of time. I was going to try to ask you a question about Ottawa, but you just answered it for me. Premier, thank you so much for the time. Always good talking to you. Anytime, Roy. You have a great weekend. You too. On Wednesday night at a fundraiser in Toronto, there was a protester who attended and uh, tried to make Mr. Trudeau aware of the multi-decade issue of mercury poisoning, poisoning at uh, Grassy Narrows First Nation. It's been going on, so for, like I said, for decades. And uh, chemical waste mercury is present in the English Wabagoon River system. Well, it was there in the 60s and the 70s. And poisoned fish, it's poisoned people living in the area. And of course, they rely on the, uh, the river as for food and for water. And we come back to the, uh, the question about how life is in, in First Nations communities, particularly in the far north. And it just seems to be okay to let them struggle. It seems to be okay. Mr. Trudeau promised, and we had Bruce Shishish call into this program about a year ago, former chief of Attawapiskat called in, and said that the prime minister had committed more than two years ago to visit Attawapiskat. He's not been there yet. So there are really serious matters that are going on with First Nations peoples in this country, in their communities, and it needs to be addressed. I mean, who else would be, who else would be allowed to continue with, with, uh, with, you know, with boil water advisories constantly? Can't drink the water because it's going to kill you or make you very ill. Um, it's very disturbing. Rudy Turtle is the chief of the Grassy Narrows First Nation. He joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Chief Turtle, thank you very much for the time. And, and what was your response to, your reaction to, the Prime Minister's reaction to the protester and then his apology is saying uh, they wanted to talk about an issue that's going on? How did you take that? Well, first of all, I was, uh, I was disappointed with the... Uh, I wasn't very impressed with uh, the way he answered the... Uh, one of our protesters, and 
secondly, uh, we acknowledge his, his apology, but we're, we're not quite accepting it as of yet. Uh, I feel that there's still a lot of action that needs to be done. Uh, what has the mercury poisoning done to your community? What has it done to your people? What is it doing now? Well, first of all, it's uh, it's, it's affected our uh, our fishing economy, uh, guiding and uh, sport fishing and and uh, commercial fishing used to be the the norm during the summertime, but now. We can't do that, and we've been unable to do that since the early 70s. And uh, it's been a very long time. So it's affected us economically, but it's also affected us. uh, The mercury itself has affected us uh, physically, where people have shakes and and neurological disorders, and, and they're not quite up to their health is not quite up to par as other people. In addition, it's also caused a lot of uh, emotional, like people have lost their self-esteem or self-worth because uh, of because they don't have their summer jobs. And, and of course, when your health is failing too, that it just uh, compounds the problem. Um. When so it's fifty years now, roughly fifty years that you haven't had the guiding industry and the sport fishing industry that you had before, and has specifically has to do with the with the mercury poisoning, and it's still present, it's still ongoing, and your community has petitioned the federal government repeatedly to and you 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 what you want to do is you want to build a mercury treatment facility that would maybe set the standard globally, and uh, Jane Philpot when she was the uh, was the minister, Indigenous Services Minister, met, uh, I believe, with you and with your staff in December. So what's come out of that? Uh, is there anything positive moving forward? Are you feeling hopeful at all? Well, my 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 staff and uh, a couple of my counselors met with her back in December, and, and it did sound... Uh, Hopeful. It sounded like uh, things were going to move, but ever since then, it seems like it seems like things have stalled. And you can af- you cannot afford waiting much longer with this. No, because our people are are continually getting sick, and 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 in a, it's also that many of the original uh, people that used to fish and guide there slowly passing along so um, uh, time is you know time is of the essence as, as they say now you've said that people are dying from mercury contamination and nothing is being done enough is enough um, but you've also had commitments from previous governments and yet this has been allowed to continue for 50 years uh, well we've been uh, we've been dealing with both levels of government, we've been dealing with on with the provincial government, and we've been dealing with the federal government. The the provincial government, and I'm talking about the previous liber, liberal government. They uh, they did do the best they can. I think uh, Premier Wynne 
made commitments and and she made a commitment to uh to clean the river um the the new government is is uh still committed to cleaning up the river but they haven't uh they haven't really been moving along as well like for example the we have the mercury disability board uh, review and the provincial government pulled out from there now on the federal side um it's just recently that the federal government is finally acting after 50 close to 50 years they've been uh, they've always passed the buck to the to the province do you think it's a case of some of it is you're out of sight or so you're out of mind? They don't have to pay you that much attention, so they don't unless somebody reminds them. Do you just get the feeling that governments have this out of sight, out of mind attitude toward your people? Yes, definitely. That, that's why we have to keep uh, protesting and and, yeah. and making uh, as much noise as we can. Uh, we, we can't keep silent because of uh, of the impacts that Mercury has had on our community members. Chief, I have one more question for you. Cleaning up the river and and building this mercury treatment facility, first of all, it's necessary. It has to be done. It just has to be done because the health Mm -hmm. risks and what's happening to your uh, your community is is intolerable. Uh, Mm -hmm. This is not something that can't be done, right? I mean, this is not something beyond the technical and scientific scope of of governments they can get it they can do it if they just resolve to do it yes they can do it if they want to they they've uh, they've cleaned other places that have been camp- contaminated either by oil or other uh poisonous uh, substance substances and 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 if they can do it in other places there's no reason why they can't do it uh on the english river it's just a matter of well, you know, if they if they want to, they can, but it seems like it's not a priority to them. And you want to, you want to see Justin Trudeau in your community? You don't necessarily you're not satisfied with him sending Seamus O'Regan. No, we're not. Like we'd like to see him uh, set his foot on the uh, on the reserve, and we'd like to see him meet the people. That so that way he'll he'll. To see firsthand what is happening to our people, and, and he can see firsthand the condition of our community. Well, if he if he wants to make his apology really sincere, then that's the step he should take. Yes, definitely. I think, uh, as you know, as we all say, that uh, actions speak louder than words. Always, Chief Turtle. Thank you for the time. Yeah, thank wish, you. Wish you the best. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.